I was driving our little white Toyota Yaris, and you were in the back seat. You were somewhere around 18 months old, and in the rearview mirror, I could see a little spout of your red hair over the handle of the car seat. We bumped down the two-lane country road, heading the back way to church, where I was to sing for a guided adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. We would be early so I could set up, and as we drove, I sang to warm up my voice. I had loaded the diaper bag with snacks and toys for you to amuse yourself in the choir stall during the service. We would sing O Salutaris, a little Eucharistic hymn by St. Thomas Aquinas for the benediction. It was a favorite lullaby of ours too, and you were sound asleep to my practicing in the car seat. in my head stopped, and everything went silent. In the rear view, I looked past your little ponytail to see a minivan hurtling over the center line. Welcome to the Diamonds for Our Children podcast, a public humanities project and motherhood ministry. I'm your host, Katie Jo LaRiviere. Drawing on all aspects of what Pope St. John Paul II called the feminine genius, I gathered together the narratives, expressions, and expertise of mothers as a collective epistolary given freely as a gift to all children who might need the loving and secure presence of motherhood. This podcast is for my little ones, of course, but it's also for you, dear one, whomever and wherever you may be. If you need the love of a mother, join me every Monday. Each episode is a facet of the diamond of motherhood, and each contributes to a unified love that reflects light back onto the world. Let us fill our hearts up so that we can pour them out. Welcome, dear one, to the end of our first season of Diamonds for Our Children. We have spent 20 weeks together exploring questions about motherhood, who and what we are, how to live tender mercy, and how to love one another. We've read many poems here and on our Poetry Live sessions on Instagram, and we've thought along with many works of fiction and nonfiction alike. I couldn't be more grateful to each one of you who have joined me over these 20 weeks, both on the podcast and on Insta. I promise to fill you in on the rest of the story from the top of this week's episode, But first, there are some exciting things coming up on Diamonds for Our Children, including an announcement about our second quarterly Patreon giveaway winner, and that'll be announced at the end of the show. Meanwhile, I want to tell you about what's coming up in the short term, after we break for the end of the season. This summer, while the Diamonds for Our Children podcast takes a restorative break and prepares for season two... Doc is going to run a free summer course called Poetry and the Human Person. 
I teach this course in its much fuller version to my college seniors, but I'm going to reformat it in a mini version just for you, and I hope you'll join me. The course is geared for those of you who are new to poetry especially, or those of you who may want to boost your confidence for reading and analyzing poetic works. It's also for anyone who just wants to read a beautiful collection of poems with me and our community. And it's for you if you want to learn a little more about the philosophy of the human person in an easily accessible format. The course begins June 14th and will run through the end of July. I will run the course in bite-sized increments on Instagram Live with sessions between 10 and 30 minutes, so you can join me live if you like or view the recording on your own time. Tracy K. Smith, one of the poets we will read in the course, argues that poems teach us to read them. And she suggests that poems require things of us as readers that other mediums like fiction and drama may not. Similarly, Nahira Waid writes, I walk into a poem and walk out someone else. She suggests that poems have the ability to change us in the mere act of reading and writing them. So this course will ask questions about what poems do, how they mean, and what power they contain. That power, we will discover, has an intimate connection to concepts of human personality and value in poetic texts. So what is it to be a person and how does poetry express humanity and human value? We'll imagine and define these concepts together using mechanisms of meaning-making that poems especially, and sometimes singularly, teach us to use. Together, we will explore an introduction to poetry. So this is not a comprehensive introduction to the traditions of English or American poetry, but rather a series of intensive exercises designed to equip you with the analytical tools needed to read, discuss, and write about poetry. And of course, this is the best kind of learning experience, right? Because there are no grades, no assignments. It's just you and me and our community learning to read deeply together, having lovely conversations, and I really can't wait to share it with you. I hope you'll join me in reading and discussion on Instagram. Head over to Diamonds for Our Children on Instagram, give us a follow so that you won't miss any part of the course. And now part one of our season finale. had been the only car on this country back road until a boxy brown minivan, a 1989 Chrysler, swerved into view, sped past us in the opposite direction, and then immediately crossed the center line behind us, nearly clipping my back bumper. The huge mass of metal flew downward into an irrigation ditch, where it collided head-on with the embankment. In slow motion, the minivan upended, flipping vertically through the fence, then rolled and finally rested on its wheels 20 yards into a hayfield. I slammed on my brakes and pulled onto the thin shoulder, trembling as I tried to grip my phone. 
Glancing in the rear view, I was comforted to see that you remained asleep in the back seat. I dialed 911 as I got out of the car and ran toward the gaping hole in the fence where the minivan had suffered its first flip. In a few minutes, the 911 responder said it was okay to hang up, and as I dropped the phone from my ear, I first heard and then saw a lanky woman with dark, long hair staggering toward me. She was covered in blood from her mouth downward. It was steadily streaming down her chin and neck from her mouth where her teeth had been, but were no more. She flailed her arms and moaned something about her boyfriend who was still in the car. Saying this, she realized she no longer had front teeth, and then a look of panic came rushing over her, and behind the streaming blood, her face turned pale. Screaming incoherently about her teeth, she scrambled up the gravelly side of the ditch with one sandal missing, the other dangling from her left ankle, and grasped the long grass for help until we met in the middle. I guided her to the ground and entreated her to try to stay calm as I explained that help was coming. A man in a large pickup truck drove past, then hid his brakes and pulled over. He came running in Carhartts and cowboy boots, shouting that he was an off-duty fireman and was anyone else hurt? Just then, time returned to its normal pace, which seemed much too fast, and I felt helpless. Suddenly the ambulance was there and a police officer was asking me and a few other people to leave since help had arrived and it was dangerous to have cars parked along the narrow shoulder of the road. I asked if they needed a statement, a witness, but he said no and shooed me away. The woman stared blankly at me as I got to my feet and backed away, then turned and ran toward you. I crawled into the back seat to look at you, to double and triple check your seatbelt, your car seat buckle, to thank God you were alive, to marvel at you still sleeping to imagine your dreams and a world in which you would never be in danger, in which you would never come running like a ghostly phantom out of a field with no teeth in your head. To halt my panic, I forced myself to look away from you and put my eyes on the road ahead. The road I'd have to drive if we were ever going to get to church if I were ever going to sing at benediction, if I were ever going to continue living in this world. I was 25, and by some miracle, life was in front of the both of us. Part 2 before John Milton wrote his epic account of the fall of man in Paradise Lost, an Anglo-Saxon poet drafted an account, or perhaps two, scholars aren't settled on the relationship between the A and B texts, of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. The texts were discovered in manuscripts dating to the first half of the 9th century, 
Here's the beginning of the text in Old English. Us is richt Michel, that we rodera weard, werida vulder quinning, vordem herian, modum luvian, he es magna sped, heofud eara, hea yeshefta, freya almichti. A great duty is ours that we praise with our words and love with our hearts the guardian of the heavens, the glorious king of hosts. He is mighty of powers, head of all his noble creations, the Lord Almighty. Heagum thrimum, soth fast and swithafiorm, swegelbosmas held, thachweran yeset, Vida and Sida Thulia held Godus Vuldus Bernum Yasta Werdum. With exalted majesties, righteous and sustaining, he held the heavens that were established far and wide by God's power for the children of glory, the guardians of souls. Here the Anglo Saxon poet describes a mighty God, one who we owe praise with our words and love with our hearts, one who established the heavens, not for himself, but who holds those heavens for the children of glory. He established it for his creation on their behalf for our joy. Heoft on gleum and dreum, and hera ord fruman, engla threatas, beorte blisse, was hera blad michel. Thenias trimfiasta, theoden herodon, sagdion lustum lof, hera lifre andemdon, drictines deathum wearen, swither yesalie. They had splendor and joyfulness, and in their creator the companies of angels had sheer bliss. Great glory was theirs. Majestic servants, they lauded their prince, spoke his praise, and glorified their lord of life. They were exceedingly blessed with the glory of the Lord God. The angels praised their God it's their duty, but it's also their prerogative. It's also their right. And he rewards them. It is a mutual love of the other. And later, the text describes the creation of the angel of light, Lucifer, or as we know him now, Satan. Anna hafte he swaswilina yukorktina, swa mitigna on his modjathot, and led hina swa mitles welden, hestina to him on heofana reche, hafte he hina swa hitna yukorktina. One he had made so powerful, so mighty in his thought. He allowed him so much control, exalted him 
in the kingdom of heaven. He had made him so bright. Swa win li twas his west on heofenum, that him come from where the drichtne, ye leech was hethem leotum sterum. So beautiful was his stature in heaven, because he came from the hosts of the Lord, he was alike to the light of the stars. Lucifer, like the other angels, is beautiful because he comes from the Lord. And he was the most beautiful, the angel of light, and so like the light of the stars. And therefore, the poet continues, Lof shealda he strict in his wearken, dear in shealda he his dreamas on heofonum, and shealda he strict in a thankian, thus leanus there he on tham leogda yeshereda. He should have loved the works of the Lord, for he should have held dear his joys in heaven, and he should have thanked his Lord for his reward that he had assigned to him, the light. Yet the angel does not give himself as he should, Sheolda, and instead, Ak he ahwenda hit him to thinge. He nevertheless changed himself to worse things. In utter refusal of the confines of the gift cycle, that is, what the Lord gives, his creation returns. And in that giving and returning and giving and returning is trust. It is love. It is willing the good for the other. But Lucifer, Lucifer does not reciprocate. The poet's meaning is powerfully focused on the way Lucifer changes his self. Lucifer does not sin because he chooses something other than God intends, though this is the effect. Rather, in a strongly Augustinian fashion, Lucifer changes himself. That's when the poem says, Ahwenda hit him. Or in technical translation, he, Lucifer, him changed to worse things. And though sin can be theorized as a turning away, the Anglo-Saxon Genesis challenges this common euphemism in accord with Augustinian theology of sin. Sin is a turning away from God, certainly, but its mechanism is a turn away from one's own self toward non-being. Thus, Satan does not turn away from God to something else in the poem, something else that's better. There is nothing better. Instead, the poet says, he changes himself to something other than the self he was created to be. If he was created to share God's likeness, the light, the beauty, he is now dissimilar to God. And he reflects precisely Augustine's realization of himself as belonging to, quote, a regio dissimilitudinis, a region of dissimilarity, some shadow version of being. 
And in this way, Lucifer makes himself into an anti-self. All this season, I have been exploring the question of who I am, who we are. I began this project with a sense of the things I wanted to share with you, the things I know about that question and how to respond to it. I spoke with many incredible guests about ideas I really believe and love. We spoke with Carlene Kantner about imagination, growth, and living intentionally, and with Dr. Beth Anderson about truly seeing the other in our friendships. We talked about some beautiful and difficult truths with Destiny Herndon de la Rosa, Carolina Allen, Cecily Smith, and Alexa Colella. And we learned to take a look at our own biases and expand our definition of the human family. And we learned to look at ourselves with mercy and grace in our conversations with Amber Clevin and Rebecca Field. Through each of these conversations runs the tension between being and acting. A tension which the Anglo-Saxon Genesis poet also explores. You see, it's God who makes Lucifer what he is, an angel of light. And what Lucifer was created to do, remember Sheolda, he should have done these things, What he is created to do draws immediately from his being. Just as in every one of God's creations, the being and the doing are meant to cohere. Being and acting are meant to integrate. It's only when Lucifer rejects the coherence between being and acting, when he forgets what he is, that he turns away from being. So let me propose to you that the integration of your being with your acting is the project of your life. Successful achievement of this project will look different for every person. It will look different for you than it looks for your siblings. We are a diverse creation that reflect in our many small ways the exceedingly grand and unified glory of God. But this mission more than anything else, more than getting married or having a high-paying job or getting a PhD or having a lot of friends, this will bring you joy. It's not an easy task or a quick one. Every time I think I have it figured out, I turn around and have more to learn. But giving up on this task is, to me, the same as Lucifer's crucial mistake. For the other angels in heaven, giving praise and love to God was just what they are. The verb and the noun collapse into one another. But if, like Lucifer, I forget what I was made to be, I cease being, at least to some degree. And we were made for fullness, for joy a joy that comes from doing the work it takes to be what you are, a beloved child. Part three. 
I'm 15 years old, and it is December of 2001. I'm hanging upside down, suspended by my seatbelt in the driver's seat of a 1997 blue Ford station wagon. Gasoline leaks steadily onto the snow, its sickening scent heavy in the air, and everything is dark. This, this is what they call slow time. The driver's side window is missing. I reach my right hand down, which is up, and my left hand up, which is down. Holding my weight in my left hand, I unbuckle my seatbelt with my right and worm my way through the window frame. As I army crawl my way out of the car and through the snow, I am calm and lucid. Do I taste any blood? I attempt to wiggle my teeth with my tongue, but I cannot. My teeth are intact. I wiggle my fingers and toes, move every joint, blink my eyes. Do they work? Is it this dark or have I lost my sight? I stare into the snow, inches from my nose. Frozen grass and mud mingle with glass. The surface of the snow is scarred by the giant imprint of my car, but I cannot yet tell that from this too close vantage. I roll onto my back, propping up on my elbows to peer back at the scene I am crawling away from. My car, shorter from end to end by about a foot now, rests on its ceiling like an upturned beetle, its wheels still spinning like legs nervily protesting the end of its short life. The beetle's edges blur into the snowy field, which itself glows from the streetlights half a football field away, and her blue paint fades into the night behind it. This car, in which my family had spent many long road trips, driving back and forth from Bozeman to Billings to Mile City, now took what seemed like its last cautious breaths. One spark between a restful interment and a fiery explosion. For months, my clothes, my schoolbooks, my backpack, all would reek of gasoline and oil. My point shoes, sewing kit, and favorite practice CDs, ruined. I am still in slow time. Rising to my feet, I silently watch as cars glide by on the road, a major artery of my hometown. I feel like James Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. No one is stopping. I feel as if no one has noticed me. No one has seen my car spinning, careening, slamming, flipping, dodging, landing, going dark. But it is too dangerous to stop. I'm coming home from ballet practice at 8 p.m. on a December evening and the rain is turning to ice before it hits the ground. Anyone who attempts a sudden stop will fishtail like I did. 
Have you ever felt a car fishtail? It's like being in a body that isn't your own, feeling the hips of that body sway rhythmically like a cha-cha or a salsa. Have you ever danced the salsa with a man who knew how to lead? You don't think, you just feel, until the rhythm suddenly snaps and you are spinning and then on that dance floor faces and the lights around you smear into one another. You don't think, you just feel. Until suddenly the spinning stops. And you're face to face with an upslope of an irrigation ditch. And the beautiful man, the man you trusted to lead you in this dance, is no longer there. His arms won't catch you. So you stop feeling. You think clearly and intentionally. You brace your arms against the wheel and tell yourself, we are doing this, and hope the fence line will slow you down, just as long as the beetle launches between the fence poles and misses the street lamps, and instead of an embarrassing tumble to the dance floor, you cartwheel end over end into a field of dead alfalfa. walk away from that pile of metal, upholstery, and glass. It's purely out of instinct. This is a moment when being and acting are pure and aligned. When I stagger toward the road, which is the only source of help, and I realize no one can stop, that's when I cry. And that's when a lady I've never seen before and have never seen again, comes running toward me and pulls me into her soft body and asks me, how did you survive that? Slow time. Slow time speeds up like the waking from a dream. Dreams are a meta space where you can realize you're dreaming without waking up, but only for so long until you do wake up. Instantly, liminality dissipates and you must face what you are given. I have always felt that my feelings about this night, what I had been given in the way of a miracle, and what I felt I lost, were like a dream. Because while dreams can be meaningful to the dreamer, They are tedious as hell to hear about. So I've held this dream close until now, until I felt I could share it with you. We have one precious life, my darling.
I spent a long time sitting in the front seat of a sheriff's patrol car wondering if I was going to face charges. I had no idea if I had done something wrong. I was driving legally. I had just earned my license the previous summer. But no one explained things to me. I still don't know why I sat in the patrol car alone for that long. There were fire trucks and ambulances on the scene, likely looking to make sure there was no one else in the car and securing the scene so as to prevent an explosion. They finally took me to sit in an ambulance. I remember they asked me my address and phone number and a guy named Rich called my parents. When I was finally cleared by the EMTs, fire department, and sheriff, my brother couldn't stop talking and Papa was stoic. They put me in Papa's truck and we started driving cautiously home. As I would 10 years later, with you in the back seat, I put my eyes on the road in front of me. I walked away from that accident without a scratch, when I definitely should have died, or at least lost my front teeth, and for the rest of my life I have set my eyes on the road ahead. I don't remember what anyone said to me. I remember a general feeling of shock, and I remember watching the sleet and yellow centerline blur into the asphalt in the glare of the truck's headlights. It was a road I'd have to travel if I were going to finish my sophomore year of high school, if I were going to have the courage to break up with a boy who wasn't good for me, if I were going to survive that year half as well as my mother did after a second grueling joust with cancer, if I were going to move to North Carolina, where I had been admitted for the next fall to start professional training at the North Carolina School of the Arts, if I were going to have the courage to give up an entire identity as a ballet dancer afterward and create a new one in college and beyond, if I was going to be what I was created to be and make the choices that it would require, it was the road I'd have to drive, or at least walk down one foot in front of the other, if I was going to meet your dad and fall in love and learn how to love beyond myself, if I was going to believe in myself and in you and in what we could be together. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh 
and exciting over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Oh, dear heart, I cannot thank you enough for coming along with me these 20 weeks. Remember that you can always listen back to any episode from our first season at any time and visit the Diamonds for Our Children website to see photos, access links to our weekly resources, and see production credits. The journey continues this summer in Doc's free mini course, Poetry and the Human Person. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram for those mini-sodes starting on June 14th, and subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss the launch of Season 2 coming up in August. Never hurts to leave a little review there either. Finally, I get to close this season by announcing our second quarterly Patreon giveaway winner, and thereby to end the season with a gift. I'm so pleased to send this quarter's giveaway item, a beautiful collection of poems by Susan Barba. The collection is called Geode, and it goes to Patreon member Carlene Kantner. Thank you so much for your support, Carlene. I hope you enjoy this collection as much as I do. It is, it is a gem. If you'd like to hear a reading from this collection, find it on Doc's Poetry Live series over on Instagram. Thank you so much for spending time with me this week. You are a beloved child, and today, for just a few moments, you chose to be with me. I'm so honored by that. I hope you can feel how much you are loved. If you know someone who could benefit by spending time with us, will you invite them to the Diamonds for Our Children community? Help them find our website at diamondsforourchildren.com. Send them a link to the show on Spotify, Apple, or any podcast platform or search for Diamonds for Our Children on Patreon. Patreon members are eligible for lots of good things, especially the opportunity to help me turn this mama love into tangible giving in our communities. You can also share what the show means to you by reviewing the podcast on the free Apple Podcast app. Rating and reviewing helps others to find our community and our love. And who knows, your review might just be featured on the doc website. You can also get in touch with me via email at diamondsforourchildren at gmail.com to ask questions or share your thoughts with me. I can't wait to be with you again next week. Together, we create facets of a unified love that reflect light back onto the world. <laughs>